call in 732-364-3598. You could obviously comment on the Facebook Live or Periscope feed as we talk about stuff going on in the world of baseball, sports, and unifying America. A couple different topics we're going to hit up today. A couple things I found pretty interesting, and I'm just going to add a couple different takes to it. Of course, we had the baseball postseason yesterday, an exciting game between the Boston Red Sox and the Houston Astros, which I'm going to touch on in a little bit. Um, you got, obviously, the football Sunday coming. The NBA basketball season is open. Uh, put my money on my five over-unders that I'm picking for the NBA this season. Uh, they're featured on my website, johnpla.com. So if that's something that you'd like to take a look at, please do. And also, anything that you're thinking about. If you have certain lines, another one I was thinking about the other day, and this was kind of a little bit after I ended up doing the show, and I was thinking about it. And I was thinking about Carmelo Anthony and his impact on the Knicks for a series of years, and then his impact on the Oklahoma City Thunder last year. And I was thinking, he's going to the Rockets. The Rockets, obviously, are, are very highly respected. There's a lot expected out of them. They're going to win some games, you know, yada, yada, yada. And I am thinking, how do you, I guess, put up the balance of Carmelo, Carmelo Anthony's impact on a basketball team in either a positive or a negative way? In other words, if he didn't help the Oklahoma City Thunder, and I'm not going to blame the entire performance of the Oklahoma City Thunder last year on Carmelo Anthony, but it was a team with Paul George and, of course, Russell Westbrook that was expected to win a lot of games, that was expected to potentially, as a super team kind of unified, make a run at Kevin Durant and Steph Curry and the Golden State Warriors, and that never happened. And you look at the Houston Rockets, obviously the prohibitive... Uh, you know, the team ends up going out there winning the most games in the NBA last year. A team that certainly did exactly what they needed to do. Took the Golden State Warriors to seven games in the Western Conference Finals. It could have very well won that entire series. Now, they didn't. And, of course, that's the only thing we're going to end up remembering. But, you know, are the Rockets better or are they worse with Carmelo Anthony, and I think if I had it to do over again, I may consider, and, and maybe I'll throw some money on it. I don't think it's big of a deal. Maybe I'll throw, you know, five, ten bucks on it, twenty bucks, you know, a little here, a little there. But I would definitely consider the Houston Rockets under. And it's not to totally throw salt on Carmelo Anthony, thinking that he's going to single-handedly bring the Houston Rockets down. But it's hard to imagine, number one, the Rockets winning as many games as they did last year. And number two... It's hard to imagine Carmelo Anthony taking that team to the top or put them in a position where they're actually better or a more feared team. I think the Warriors got better. You know, DeMarcus Cousins, when he's ready to play, is going to add another dimension to that team, which obviously didn't really need it. You know, Carmelo Anthony joining James Harden and the guys over in, in Houston with Chris Paul and the other players, I just... I don't think it necessarily makes them better. I don't think they're going to be a bad team. I don't think they're going to be a team that's going to lose, let's say, less than 50 games. But if I'm going to take an over or under with the Houston Rockets, I'd probably stick with the under. So that's the one that I wanted to bring up that I didn't talk about on the show yesterday. Okay, well, maybe we should tell that to Rayman because he practically bankrupted a casino if he was a retard. 
but anything that's on your mind in regards to over-unders, please let me know. I'll add the comments as you guys go throughout the show. The first thing I wanted to start out by talking about today was, you know, if you think about it, and before I get to my major point, I have to mention something, because we all, we all do this when it comes to, you know, Twitter or Facebook, social media. We end up putting out something that, you know, for whatever reason, there was a little glitch in what we were trying to say. And I fathom, you know, I look at myself as a baseball historian. I look at myself as a person that has the knowledge. But within that knowledge, even the best of the best, and I certainly don't consider myself the best, but ones that are better than me are going to make a mistake every now and then. They're going to maybe overlook something that to the general public may seem obvious. So the point that I was trying to make on Twitter this morning was talking about how the Los Angeles slash Brooklyn Dodgers, who go back to the year of 1884 in the National League, and the Boston Red Sox, of course, known as the Americans, which came out in 1901, an original American League franchise, you know, had been around for so long and don't have a history in the World Series. Now, I did incorrectly make the statement that the Red Sox and the Dodgers never faced each other in the World Series. And you know what? That bothered me. But I'm not going to take the route and say that in 1916, when the, the Boston Red Sox played the Brooklyn team, which was only then known as the Robins, technically it wasn't the Dodgers. No, I'm not going to go that route. I'm going to admit my mistake and move on. Now, you're a, you, uh, you're such a bad person, like all the way through to your core. It was a fact that I knew, but I just for whatever reason, overlooked when I was trying to make the point about the fact that both of these teams have been around for a really long time, and it's amazing that they don't have more of a postseason history. You think of the Dodgers-Yankees and the amount of times that they played in the World Series. Now, you could say the Yankees were a dominant team, and obviously the Dodgers being part of 21 World Series in a modern era, two World Series in the, uh, the 19th century, but... You know, you're looking at the Giants and the Dodgers and the Yankees as the teams that probably played the most in the World Series. So obviously there's a history and you could go back and one of the things I enjoy doing every year when it comes to the World Series is talk about the matchup and potential scenarios. So there is one and I was incorrect when I didn't identify it and I should have. Red Sox, Robins, the Brooklyn Robins who were a figure, obviously a predecessor to the Los Angeles Dodgers franchise. They were named after their manager, Wilbert Robinson, who led the team to two World Series appearances in 1916 and 1920. He was actually the manager from 1914 to 1931 and was really the first of the longtime serving legendary Dodgers managers. After him, it would be Leo DeRocher. A couple managers would be between him and Walter Alston and, of course, Tommy Lasorda getting into the times where we are today where the Los Angeles Dodger managers don't necessarily serve as long as some of the guys in the past. But the guy that got it started was a 17-year run by a legendary and Hall of Fame manager, Wilbert Robinson. And he, even though he never led his team to a World Series championship, he got them to two World Series. And one was against the Boston Red Sox in 1916. So you got that potential rematch. If the Red Sox end up holding off and the Dodgers end up holding off, both teams one win away from getting themselves to the World Series. And then the other got the other possible rematch, which would 
involved the Houston Astros and the Los Angeles Dodgers, a rematch of last year's World Series. So you got the Brewers, of course, and then you got the Dodgers, and then you got the Red Sox and the Astros. So between that, there's no other matchups that you could say, hey, there's a repeat of, let's say, 1982. Let's say, hypothetically, it was Cardinals, Brewers, which you know, that couldn't happen anyway because the Brewers are now in the National League. But if the Brewers can somehow make it to the World Series, one of the things that I would find fascinating is the fact that the Brewers would become the second team in Major League Baseball history to appear in a World Series in both leagues. Now, we know there's only two teams that can do that because there's only two teams that have switched leagues. The first one, of course, was the Astros last year when they made it to the World Series in 2017. Of course, going to the World Series in 2005, 12 years earlier, when they were playing in the National League. The Milwaukee Brewers of the American League made it to the World Series in 1982. And, of course, if they made it this year, they would be the second team to appear in a World Series in both leagues. So... Just like everybody else that was watching the Red Sox-Astros game yesterday, a lot of attention, of course, was drawn to the Jose Altuve fly ball that ended up going, looks like, into the right field seats. And right field umpire Joe West, who I don't think is the greatest umpire, I think he's still a guy that makes it more about him and his image and his reputation when in order to be a good Major League Baseball umpire, you're supposed to really officiate the game without your name being kind of thrown out there. And I said about, you know, every time you got something in a boil and the same thing or the same name keeps coming up to the top, it's usually not for a good thing. And Joe West's reputation reflects that. So I don't actually blame him. And maybe he wasn't necessarily in the right position. And I know he spent time thinking about it. His intentions were to make the correct call. But one of the things that stood out about the Red Sox 8-6 win over the Houston Astros was the fact that he did not make the correct call. Now, we have instant replay, and it's set up for a certain reason. Now, the rules that are set, and sometimes during the regular season, we don't see these rules set in a certain way that they either have been before or should be. Now, the rule does state when it comes to instant replay that the call that is made on the field, in order for it to be overturned, there has to be conclusive evidence that that call was wrong. It's a lot easier to do when Angel Hernandez is the umpire, because you know in a lot of cases Angel Hernandez is making the incorrect call. But when the call is identified as being incorrect, we understand that replay is there, replay overturns it. And the call ends up being reversed on the field. But when you have something that is a little bit inconclusive, because you had a couple different variables there. You have the ball going up into the stands. You got Mookie Betts jumping over the fence, or at least putting his glove over the fence into the crowd. And you have a fan at the same time simultaneously leaning over and making contact with the ball. Now there's a dispute over whether the ball makes contact first with the fans or Mookie Betts' glove. I believe it does touch Mookie Betts' glove first, but does it ricochet into the fan? So you got many different things there. Is the ball over the fence or is the ball still on the playing field and the fan reaches over? So it was determined that the fan had reached over and made you know inappropriate contact with the ball 
which meant it was an automatic out, or the fan interfered with Mookie Betts' effort to try to catch the ball. And obviously, if you're a baseball fan, you remember what happened in the league championship series in 1996 between the New York Yankees and the Baltimore Orioles. Tony Tarasco going to essentially camped right under it, and a young fan whose name becomes very famous because of that, Jeffrey Mayer reaches over and ends up pulling the ball into the crowd, which was a clear evidence of fan interference. It wasn't as obvious in the actions that you saw yesterday. There was a lot more gray area. There was a situation where you had a very good uh, outfielder like Mookie Betts who has the ability to leap and get into the crowd and make catches like that. And he's in a position to make a great play. Now, obviously, there is contact between his glove and that of the fan. Now, is the fan reaching over onto the field? You know, my understanding of it and seeing the replay as many times as I did, it looks as if Mookie Betts reached over the fence. So once the ball, once the ball goes over the fence, fan interference is taken away and isn't a possibility anymore. So the fan interference, which we normally see, can only exist if the fan is reaching over onto the field. And I think it was proven time after time after looking at this play. And I don't know what Major League Baseball and their you know executive offices and the, the replay review booth that set, I believe, in New York City saw. But it looked to me like the ball crossed over the fence. Now, does that mean it's an automatic home run? No. But what I believe is that it did make contact with Mookie Betts' glove and the one little disputed part that can't be understood. And the one that I saw this play probably about 50 times, kept seeing it over and over again, it looks like there's a little dispute between the ball hitting Mookie Betts' glove and making contact with the fan. Now, if it made contact with the fan off of his glove and the fan was not interfering, then it should be called a home run. Now, if the ball went off of Mookie Betts' glove and made you know, to a point where there was no contact with the fan, the ball coming back onto the field, it should have been ruled a, an in play and a double. Now, that did seem to be as if what Joe West was going to call at first. In play, runners end up going to second and third, but then he changed the call to an out, which, of course, through the replay was not overturned. But I believe that if, if it was it was one of two things, either a home run, if it made contact with Mookie Betts' glove and the fan because the fan did not interfere or the ball was in play and should have been uh, ruled the double because of the contact with Mookie Betts' glove and the ball going back off of Betts' glove onto the field of play. Now, just a reminder that this copyright and telecast is authorized under Internet rights granted by the World Wide Web and is solely for entertainment of our audience. Any publication, reproduction, other use of the pictures, descriptions, and accounts of this show without the express written consent of the Passball Show at JohnPielli.com and JohnPielli LLC is prohibited. Any commercial other use of the program, such as by charging admission for its showing, is similarly prohibited. So I was looking at a... a post on cbssports.com and I was reading this yesterday before I ended up doing the show and I figured I wanted to spend a little more time talking about it. I didn't want to just mention it as a footnote yesterday. 
and you think of, of course, the unfortunate life. And the unfortunate life that was lived by Aaron Hernandez and how much of it was his own fault. And I think when you find a person that falls from grace, not just falls from grace, but you find out that, you know, under the mask or in the National Football League case, the helmet and shoulder pads of a player that is contributing very well and helping the New England Patriots looks like a great athlete, looks like one of the better offensive players on the team. And underneath all that is a person that is living a very complicated life, a life that involves crime, a life that involves little regard for the law, and when it could be disputed how much of it was on Aaron Hernandez and how much of it was on the people that he was surrounding himself with, the question also has to be asked, how much of a leader or how much of a facilitator was Aaron Hernandez in the quote-unquote group that he was hanging out with. We could agree that Aaron Hernandez was associated with bad people. The question that needs to be asked, is Aaron Hernandez himself a bad person? Was he a facilitator of the group? Or was he just a person that was caught behind the scenes and involved in something that he should not have been involved with? Because parents always do this, right? You know, and Aaron Hernandez obviously grew up in a, in a broken home, and obviously a lot of the effects of his early life led to the life he ended up living. But parents of any child will say the same thing. They'll say that their belief is 100% of the time that their child, who may be straying or maybe getting themselves into trouble, is the victim of being involved in the wrong crowd. But I always want to put the other side of it and the possibility that your son or your daughter, the one that happens to be making mistakes, the one that happens to be rolling with the wrong crowd in your own opinion, may be the facilitator of that wrong crowd, may be the leader of a group. When, when they're getting in trouble, they may be the people that are around them, may look up to them, and that person, your son or your daughter, may be the one that ends up leading that group to stray. It may be a group of good people and your son or your daughter, the one that you say is straying away and hanging with the wrong crowd, that wrong crowd may be a victim of what your son and daughter is doing. So as it applies, of course, to Aaron Hernandez, I don't know if we'll ever know. We know that he got himself, in, himself involved, not just with stuff that was involved in the murders, of, of course, the two people that died and the other person that died and the murder that Aaron Hernandez was arrested and then convicted of in the murder of his former friend, Odin Lloyd. You know, you wonder what caused Aaron Hernandez to be this way. Was he just a bad person the whole time? And the Boston Globe put together an investigative series and it is talking about some of the things and some of the points that were made about people that involved themselves and got to know Aaron Hernandez. And it goes to Urban Meyer, who, of course, now is the head coach of the Ohio State football team, has been involved, obviously, in, in, in the news with things in his own right. Tim Tebow was Aaron Hernandez's teammate. And Tebow, according to this story, 
you know, there was a discussion between Tim Tebow and Aaron Hernandez around, I'm sorry, Tim Tebow and Tom Brady around the time Aaron Hernandez was drafted out of Florida with the, the hope that Tom Brady and the Patriots would take care of Aaron Hernandez. Now you think about two people and when it comes to the public perception, the, the perception probably couldn't be any more different. Tim Tebow is looked up to as a saint, right? He's looked up to as almost a godly figure and his, you know, God first and Jesus first mentality, obviously being an example for anybody that wants to talk about good and positive and positivity. And Aaron Hernandez, who a lot of people forget were teammates at the University of Florida. So apparently there was something there where Tim Tebow was able to help Aaron Hernandez. And I don't know if Tim at any point will be able to talk about it in any more depth, but it's obviously a situation where Aaron Hernandez's problems, which you know many that know, many that have studied the life of Aaron Hernandez, know that they go back to age 16 when you know there was problems at home and he kind of strayed away a little bit. And I don't know if there's any signs or any evidence that it traced back to anything further. But I do think it's interesting that, you know, a guy like Tim Tebow, which I think you would expect him to have done, was pretty much there for Aaron Hernandez. And the hope was that, you know, as he entered the National Football League and was playing for the New England Patriots and playing for Tom Brady and Bill Belichick, that the hope was that Hernandez would have people looking out for him. There's another thing um, that involved Bill Belichick, and there was a talk in 2013, the early part of 2013, apparently Aaron Hernandez begged Bill Belichick, or at least requested you know, in a very serious manner, that Belichick trade him from the New England Patriots. Apparently with fear, not just for himself or not even for himself, he feels in this situation, or at least the way it was quoted, was that he was in a position where he could take care of himself because he had money, but there was fear for the safety of his fiance and his child. So the hope was that Belichick could trade him somewhere to the West Coast and basically make sure that his fiance and his child are safe. Now, obviously at this point, you realize there's a lot going on and probably in a, in a moment where you could talk about Aaron Hernandez being separated from the football player, from the contributor on the offense, from being one of Tom Brady's weapons and helping the New England Patriots win games to a person that his other side or the other part of his life is really coming to the forefront. Two people are dead. Whether Aaron Hernandez killed these people himself, evidence shows that probably Aaron Hernandez was involved in this murder of these two people in some way, shape, or form. Another person gets shot a couple months later. And of course, the knowledge that his former friend, Odin Lloyd, had led to Hernandez himself committing the act of murder and killing Odin Lloyd. That ends up being what puts Aaron Hernandez in jail. But the thought was, at least from a circumstantial standpoint, now obviously it wasn't proven in a court of law, but there was a possibility that Aaron Hernandez was involved in these other murders and the murder of Odin Lloyd was in fact because of Odin Lloyd's knowledge to the murders that he had committed before. So obviously you're looking at a person that is very much separated from the sport of pro football. And I still remember 
at, you know, what the draft day when we were discussing, uh, you know, when it was on the old, uh, the old Johnny P show with John Proctor way back in the day, you know, it seems like it was forever ago, but about eight, nine years ago. And we we're talking about Aaron Hernandez coming out of the draft and the fact that he was taken later on because of the problems that they thought he could be as a person and potential legal problems that he was dealing with. And the fact that he may not have necessarily been a nice guy. And, you know, the Patriots taking a chance on him. Here's a guy with a lot of talent at the University of Florida, played with Tim Tebow. And he's going to succeed in the National Football League as long as he could keep himself straight and keep himself out of trouble. And he did do that for a while. But, you know, I think you're going to find, of course, you know, Hernandez last year ended up committing suicide by hanging himself in, in, a, in a jail where he was serving a life sentence. You know, you're going to see a lot more details about this story come out. But obviously a, a sad situation, probably a situation that should lead to a movie. You know, a person that has some celebrity status ends up being talented enough as a football player to go to the University of Florida and to succeed there and end up becoming an NFL draft pick and a success story with the New England Patriots. And then just like that, having these series of events ending not only to his conviction of murder as we hit the concluding point of the past ball show, once again, brought to you by JohnPLA.com as well as St. Aloysius Church and School in Jackson, New Jersey. But, you know, Aaron Hernandez ends up, of course, ending his own life because of the circumstances which get too far out of control. Last thing I wanted to talk about, and I will make sure that next time I bring up this, this caption or this little mention on the show, I will have a Budweiser beer in my hand. So just make believe there is one here as I'm saying this. This is the famous Budweiser beer. We know of no brand produced by any other brewer that costs so much to brew and age. Our exclusive Beechwood Aging produces a taste, a smoothness, and drinkability you will find at no beer at any cost. So Jane Levy has a book out called The Big Fella, and it's going to chronicalize the life of the legend himself, Babe Ruth. And there's been a series of movies and books written about Babe Ruth, and a lot has been recounted in regards to his life. For those that don't know, Babe Ruth was an orphan child. Uh, his parents had abandoned him. He was a person that obviously rose to prominence as a pitcher, coming out of Baltimore and having his contract purchased by the Boston Red Sox. Helped them win a couple World Series including the one that I decided for whatever reason to neglect that happened between the Boston Red Sox and the Brooklyn Robins, who, of course, later on became the Dodgers. And, of course, he gets sold to the New York Yankees and ends up becoming the greatest power hitter that the game has ever seen. In a time where nobody hit home runs, Babe Ruth hit home runs. And it was almost like, and you could say in a kind of a, a, a sense where young people understand that you're kidding, he essentially event, invented the home run. It wasn't like home runs hadn't existed before. It's not like nobody before the days of Babe Ruth ever hit a ball over the fence. But the majority of the home runs through the dead ball era and before that were of the inside the park variety. In other words, a person gets a single, they can only get to first base. A person gets a double, they only get to second base. A person gets a triple, they get the third base. That person that was able to get all the way around the bases got themselves a home run. 
And the reason I say that so simply right now is that's the way that it was understood in baseball at that time. There really wasn't any talk about launch angle. And of course, that was never mentioned, you know, probably until about 10 years ago. But, you know, there, it wasn't about hitting the ball in the air as far as you could. It was hitting the ball to a spot and get as far as you can around the bases before the outfielders or in some cases the infielders were able to get the ball in. So Babe Ruth pops the ball over the fence a couple times, becomes an American hero. He certainly was a celebrity. And I will read this book, and I promise, uh, you know, once I read it cover to cover after I receive receive it in the mail, I'm going to talk a little more in detail about Jane Levy's book called The Big Fellow. But the one part of it that I wanted to talk about today was the possibility that Babe Ruth could have been considered the first celebrity in the United States history. And you think about it, and, and I'm sure you could talk about the days of Julius Caesar and ancient Rome and ancient Greece. And there's a guy by the name of Thomas Beckett who was murdered in the 12th century. And the revolution that ended up happening after his murder made him into a national phenomenon or a world celebrity. And you look at the days of the 1870s and Mark Twain and perhaps, you know, the Romantics in the 18th century, a year before. So there was a such thing as popularity. I think there was at that point gossip, which you hear in papers all the time. Of course, you're talking about a different time. So the gossip that had existed back then was a little less of a big deal, was a little less reported, of course. You had reporters out there and there were putting together stories for newspapers, but you also didn't have necessarily that firsthand person-to-person discussion. Those interviews where you have one person on one side and one on the others did not really exist. It was really firsthand knowledge, and a lot of times the writers at that time gave the people in the, the higher positions or the more celebratory people the respect and the benefit of the doubt about things that were being done and said that were not public knowledge. So you ask yourself, is Babe Ruth or was Babe Ruth the first celebrity? I think you can go back to the days of the U.S. presidents. You probably see a good amount of United States presidents to that point had probably become national celebrities. So I think if you're saying that Babe Ruth was the first celebrity, it's hard in the situation where the United States was, of course, because of its constitution and because of its Bill of Rights and because of unifying itself as a nation in 1776, it's hard to say that the person that's running the country, whether it's a George Washington or down the road, a, a John Adams or a Thomas Jefferson and moving on to the days of Abraham Lincoln or Teddy Roosevelt, it's hard to say that those men and the powerful positions that they hold were not of a celebrity status. So Babe Ruth, maybe in the entertainment field, may have been one of the first celebrities that the United States had ever had. You could talk about a guy like Jack Johnson or Jack Dempsey, or you know some of the celebrity status of some of the boxers that happened before and after. Boxing is probably the only other sport that 
predecessed baseball or was before baseball gained its prominence. So you could probably look at some of the best, you know, heavyweight boxing champions in the history of the world and probably put them on a pedestal and say that they were probably celebrities long before the time of Babe Ruth. Obviously, the generation we live in right now, there are celebrities in the world of music, celebrities in the world of entertainment, celebrities in the world of all different types of sports, not just baseball. And, you know, we understand that it had to have started somewhere. And I think some people do want to give Babe Ruth the credit of really being the first United States celebrity, the first guy that was as powerful as the president. And he certainly was. He certainly made more money than the president a couple years of his career. And obviously, when he was asked about it, how do you feel about making more money than the president? He says, hey, I had a better year than he had. And obviously making a joke of it. But he was always very good with crowds. He was a person that went out there and partied every single night of his life. He loved the nightlife. He couldn't just sit still at home. He needed to be not just surrounded by people, but surrounded by a lot of people. He wanted to have that scene, that theater scene every single night. And obviously he drank a lot and he ate a lot. But he, he also, you find out that he was very good. He was always very good with children. He loved, of course, his own children, but certainly was always very good to kids that came up to him. And, you know, any movie, even, you know, the John Goodman movie, which looking back on it probably was not as well put together as a lot of other documentaries about Babe Ruth. You know, you, you, you see the celebrity status that he had, but also the fact that he was always very good to kids. So I'm looking forward to reading this book. Once again, it's called The Big Fellow by Jane Levy. And we're going to certainly I'll read a cover to cover and I'll, I'll Maybe I'll reach out to, to Ms. Levy and see if we can get her as a guest on the show to talk a little bit about it. But, you know, you think of the life of Babe Ruth and the one last thing that stands out, and I think it's unfortunate because it's almost like a repeat in Babe Ruth's life. You know, he, he was abandoned as a child. He was an orphan child. And he really found some refuge in a game of Major League Baseball. And he, he certainly did. You know, baseball was a game that, at least for a certain period of time, number one, he muffed. So I do think that, you know, Babe Ruth, in the second part of his career, ends up feeling as if baseball abandons him. He leaves the Yankees after the 1934 season when they decide he's not going to be a manager. And remember, at that time, the all the great players ended up becoming managers. And, you know, you could think of baseball as you could think of any shift work type of job. You work in a certain spot for a while and then you get promoted, if you're lucky, to become a foreman or a leader or a manager. Now, the thought was in baseball that you play a certain time and you can't play anymore. And then you get promoted and you get a chance to be a manager of your own team. Babe Ruth never got that opportunity. First, the Yankees basically said no. He ends up being maybe not necessarily promised, not guaranteed, but led to believe that if he went to the Boston Braves, he would be the next manager. He was going to hold a title, quote unquote, as assistant manager during the last, what was supposed to be last year of his career. He ends up being lied to, leaves there last 13 years of his life, he doesn't get a chance to be a major league manager. Gets to be a coach with the Brooklyn Dodgers. That doesn't last very long, but he does feel abandoned for the last part of his life, pretty similar to the way he felt abandoned as a child 
because of his parents. So it's a kind of a sad story. And, you know, I'm looking forward to reading more about Babe Ruth and I've tried to research as much as I can, but I'm excited about this book. I really am. A little recap of the show from today. Um, you know, we spoke a little bit in the beginning about the NBA and the Houston Rockets maybe being added to the list of teams that you may want to take the under on. Carmelo Anthony, is he enough of a factor to keep the Houston Rockets from winning over their projected win total? Of course, my over-unders that I picked for the NBA are on my website, so feel free to look at them, comment on them, let, you know how, let me know how bad you think they are, and maybe you think a couple of them are wise. Just let me know. You got the Mookie Betts almost catching that home run by Jose Altuve yesterday. Um, it looked really looked clearly like it should have been a home run. It went off the glove and hit the fan. The only other possibility might have been that it made no contact with the fan. And if it went off of Mookie Betts' glove and back on the field, then it would be in play. But it certainly didn't look like there was fan interference. You know, Aaron Hernandez, a couple of different stories and, uh, you know, research things are coming out about details of his life and, you know, how far he really was from being, you know, an athlete, his double life that a lot of people, you know, want to mention to say that he got involved in the wrong crowd. I don't know if he necessarily got involved in the wrong crowd. He may have been the facilitator of the crowd that he rolled with. Babe Ruth book by Jane Levy. Looking forward to it. It's called The Big Fella. We'll check that out. And uh, like I said, I'll read a cover to cover. I'll give more insight about it. So uh, we'll be back with you tomorrow. We're going to do our NFL picks. So, uh, you know, we got the cumulative record to this point which is up on my website as well. This is the Passball Show brought to you by JohnPielli.com, as well as St. Aloysius Church and School in Jackson, New Jersey. God bless you, and as always, I'll see you on the other side.